0: The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health, medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Hello, and welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is John Whitbick, your host. I'm very excited today to welcome one of the top mental health professionals in the Northern Virginia area that I uh, have dealt with uh, in my law practice. As you know, we try to bring you the intersection between law and mental health. And today I'm very pleased to welcome one of the top professionals that I deal with in my law practice, Mr. Craig James, a licensed clinical social worker and licensed substance abuse treatment practitioner. He is a master of addiction counseling And also, uh, really versed in outpatient private practice, which is what we want to talk about today. And he is the, I think, co-founder of Insight to Action Therapy, great name, and director of operations at that practice. Craig, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Craig, you and I have worked together in in my domestic relations practice as well as the mental health sector. And so, the reason why I wanted to talk to you was because of the outpatient experience that you have. And One of the things that a lot of people don't understand is how effective outpatient treatment can be for treating those people who are not necessarily in a, in a total crisis, but are badly needed mental health treatment, but, but not necessarily inpatient. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your skills, and uh, some of the things that you've learned over the years in practice? Wow, background.
1: So I actually got into therapy probably in high school in some form of fashion, was raised in the church my mom was at We're going to church every Sunday. And so I couldn't sit and just be preached. They couldn't preach to me. This is not me. I'm an educational type. So talking and engaging was really the the foundation of it all. And then went to George Mason, graduated, got a job over at the Salvation Army in Fairfax, simultaneously working for the, the Juvenile Court Service Unit in Fairfax, and just created opportunities for myself. Ended up working with another guy who had a home-based company, and then outpatient services. And about five, six years ago, Cindy and I, who's the other owner of the practice, decided it was time to really make our dreams a reality and help people in the way we wanted to. And here we are. Well, here I am.
0: One of the things I love about your practice is is your name sort of sums up what y'all do. And I think, (laughs) can you tell us the story behind the unique, very unique, uh-huh. Name insight into action therapy. Uh
1: huh. Actually, it was really is what we were, we've been doing. So a lot of folks think you just go to therapy and you talk and somebody listens to you. So for us, the premise is therapy is more than just talking. And so now that you have some insight, do something with it. Turn your insights into
0: action. Right. Because one of the things I notice, and certainly in cases involving mental illness, is that's the lack of insight that is the biggest block on someone acknowledging they need help and getting help. Obviously, right. Right. So once you have that insight, you take it to the next level and turn it into action, and that's mm-hmm. the premise behind your practice. I love that's it. That's fantastic. Yeah. And of course, Cindy Turner, your your partner is also outstanding. What she does, Craig, you have a lot of experience with folks going through the court system. Yes, you are working. You work in the public schools, local businesses, and one of the things that uh, besides your your addiction counseling, which I know you spent a lot of, and I and I've dealt with you in you have this outpatient treatment practice that you, that you do and, and that you're skilled in. Um, can you first explain, other than the fact that you're in a hospital, not in a hospital, what are the different key differences between inpatient treatment and outpatient treatment for mental health?
1: Mm-hmm. So outpatient treatment, in essence, the premise is really, we want to really keep you in your community, keep you in your home. It's the least restrictive level of care we can offer you. So it's you come and see us once a week, twice a week, depending on the level of outpatient you're in, because there are different levels. Versus inpatient, uh, inpatient programming, you go in and you're there minimum ten days. It can go up to you know thirty days, if and if not longer, depending on who you are and what your conditions are. So outpatient, really, we meet you where you are. What are you coming in with? What's the challenge, and how to, if can we safely maintain you in the community? And provide you the care that you
0: need. Right now, obviously, there are people in inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, with the same diagnoses, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you may be bipolar and you may not need inpatient treatment. What percentage do you think of your practice, and maybe in general, to your knowledge, are inpatient versus outpatient currently? We're exclusively outpatient. Right, so right. I would say. Only
1: really a small
0: percentage of the
1: population really require inpatient level of care. So, John, when you go inpatient, you're really talking about stability. So you're, that individual isn't doing well for some reason. Um, and and it, it's a range of issues. It's, hey, look, person's had a trauma and they're not dealing with it. Life experience has really cause some problems. It could actually be drug related. So there are a lot of different reasons as to why someone might go inpatient. I would say as a practice, we may recommend a refer inpatient maybe in a year. I would say no more than at most 10% of our clients. And that's that's a high number, but it's really, really low because for us it's a combination of the individual, the family support system. Do we need to use some type of medication? What are the things we need to do? Where do the community support? So what do we need to do to help this person? to address that challenge so that they can stay home and, and in their
0: community. You know, we talked about, I know you and I've talked about this before, the stigma associated with mental health. One of the things I wanted to convey with doing this episode with you is it's okay, one, to be treated and, and there's nothing to be embarrassed about, but you just said it right there. 10% of your practice, you end up referring to inpatient. I know you don't do inpatient, but you refer. Mm-hmm. So really the vast majority of those that are going to be treated for a mental health issue are going to be doing it outpatient. Yes. They're going to be living their life, working, playing, and living, but adding to that a dimension to, to help them through the disability or the, the situation they find themselves in, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, Craig, tell us if you would, are there different levels of inpatient, maybe different intensity levels of, of outpatient treatment mm-hmm. that you deal with?
1: So I'll, let me give you the entire spectrum. Um, Perfect. So the lowest level is outpatient. That might be a therapist once a week, maybe every other week, about a 50-minute to an hour-long clinical session. Under that therapeutic outpatient level, you can do therapy. It might be a medication management with a psychiatrist. Primarily, that's really outpatient on its, on its axis. So let me say, that might be outpatient. We also might include group therapy. So you're looking at potentially outpatient for individual therapy. It might require medication management. It also might have a level of support for, with, with group. The next above that would be an intensive outpatient. We use the acronym of IOP. That level of care, you're looking at about three to five times a week, three to four hours, maximum about 12 hours of, of, on an IOP level of care. The next level above that, even more intense, is what we call a PHP or a partial hospitalization program. That typically has a person going to a program three to five times a week, about six hours each time. Those programs last, depends on the the person in the situation, but you're talking at a PHP level of care, maybe two or three weeks in length. The highest level that we can really do is an inpatient program. That's really a hospitalization for purposes of stabilization. Some might call it the psych ward, you may have heard that before. When things are just really, really bad and you just need to be stabilized, they typically use a lot of medications to stabilize you. And then once you leave the inpatient program, you might step down to an IOP level or a PHP level of care.
0: You said something interesting when you were describing sort of the the levels, the intensities, group therapy. And I don't want to get you too far off topic, but I'm fascinated by the notion that we would use the experiences of others to treat. Mental illness, and in fact, uh, you know, our first episode, we, we talked to a woman who, you know, it's uh, this is my brave, and they that mm-hmm. basically what they do is they share experiences to help others come to the realization that they need treatment and it's okay to get help. Tell me about some of the group therapies. When do you use it? Why do you use it? Uh, how does it work? It's actually probably the, one of the best ways to
1: get somebody better, whether it's mental health or substance use related, because often you you decrease stigma. Number one. Number two, it's a shared experience. And so I don't have to be embarrassed uh, about what I'm going through. So it's somebody just like me. And not only are they just like me, they can give me advice. They can give me their experiences. And even in the context of group, which I think is important, you really have two types. You have what's an open, open group and a closed group. A closed group being we all start and stop at the same time. The open group format, which is when we've run them, we typically run them in an open format. Everyone's in a different place. So I might have a person who's just starting out in a group, with somebody's who been there for four, five, six, seven weeks. And the fact that that senior person, they can say, oh man, yeah, I was there before. Here is what I've done. Here, here are the setbacks I had. And so that shared experience really helps the group. It, it's a reminder for the person who's been around. And it's actually supportive for that new person. If you even just think about it, taking it outside of mental health, we all have group experience—families, friends, coworkers—and so we all come together collectively for a mission, for an objective. So group therapy for mental health is just like that. It's the same, same concept.
0: Excellent. You know, I, one of the things that I've experienced, you know, in, in, in some of these practices is. The the, the desire for, you know, people want to hide the fact that they suffer from a mental health issue. Obviously, it's embarrassing. They were raised a certain way. Things are getting better in society, but I would still argue that the stigma associated with mental health is is one of the biggest impediments to treatment, for sure. And of course, when you're going through a divorce or a custody or something like that, the last thing you want to be thought of is disabled or mentally ill because it can affect your ability to, to win your case. However, you said group therapy was so effective. How do you get someone past the embarrassment, the, the reluctance, the, mm-hmm. the hesitation to share their story with others? So that's actually
1: a really good question. A lot of times folks will say, I don't want to be in group. I don't trust group, right? I'm private. I say, okay. And I'll honor that. And I'll usually ask people, would you just do me a favor? Would you come to this group? I'm there. I know your story. So you have a, an ally in me. Come in and sit in. Give me two sessions. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. We will go back to individual. And I usually also will say that first group, that new person, I don't really have them share anything. A lot of it is just really them watching that process. If you've got a really effective group, the dynamics, that, that group, those other members will pull that other person in and they'll share their experiences. It, it's, it's a lot of it's predicated in an ask. Would you do this for me here? And I usually will explain I'm thinking this because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And it's the fact that they have a clinician in there who's supportive and just we want to get through that. It's a we statement. So I want to get through this with you.
0: Right. Right. If, a lot of what you do in outpatient treatment is substance abuse counseling, right? Yes. About a half. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the difference between, obviously, substance abuse is a mental illness just like anything else, certainly under Virginia law it is, um, and and laws in lots of other states. First of all, if you are, let's, let's just take alcoholism for a second. So what's the formal clinical diagnosis or definition of alcohol, being an alcoholic? The DSM-5 would say
1: we break it down into mild, moderate, or severe. So it would be an alcohol substance use disorder severe, mild, or moderate. The DSM gives us criteria, which we would use to diagnose the severity of where a person is, right. but that's the DSM kind of gives is the framework. It, it teaches us exactly how to diagnose some of it. And much of it is really based on self-report.
0: Right. So would be a severe alcoholic, for example? Two things
1: I'd be looking at withdrawal symptoms. Um, so somebody right. who is when they stop drinking, they're having physical withdrawals. I also might be looking at issues of tolerance, which means I need more of the substance to get what I used to feel. I might be looking at factors that that the family's having an issue. The person isn't performing as they used to. Really life disruption.
0: Right. Uh, so it's not necessarily how many drinks you have a day. It it's, it's not. Yeah. It,
1: yeah. There are A lot of factors in, in it. I think the DSM has 12 factors that we can look
0: at to consider. Right. And a person has to meet six of those factors. You know, my back of the napkin guess at this would be if you're mild, you're just, it's a similar factors. They just aren't a less, they're just lesser in, in severity. Is that right? Correct.
1: Okay. Well, look at it this way it, it, since we're talking about alcohol, mm-hmm. interesting fact. So only about 6% of the population meet criteria for a severe substance use disorder or an alcoholic is the term people would use 6%. If you think about numerically, that's about the population of Florida. However, it's a lot of people though. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a ton of people. It's about 12 million. But for those who are struggling with alcohol use disorders, that mild to moderate, we're talking about 22%, which is about 90 million people. Mm -hmm. And so with therapy, whether it's for mental health or for drug and alcohol issues, it's not a one size fits all. So while a person who's severe may need a higher level of care, I've got to understand that versus the person who's mild to moderate. They may not need that intensity. They may need a different level of care, a different type of support. And as therapists, that's really our responsibility is to assess and based on that person's challenges, we got it. We're supposed to set up that program for them to help them figure out what's really going on. So
0: there are people that I experience in my law practice to do drugs, of course, mm-hmm. but by far and away, the most severe addictions that I see in you know, just day in, day out is alcohol and pornography. I mean, mm-hmm. Those are the two most intense, most litigated uh, substance abuse issues, and I'm not sure pornography, substance abuse, but it's an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so sticking with the alcohol second as a good example of, and, and a frequent example, if somebody's a severe alcoholic that doesn't need inpatient, what are some of the, the tools that'll be used and what sort of outpatient therapy modalities would, would be done mm-hmm. to help that person through and recover?
1: We would be looking at a combination of individual therapy. I might be looking at group therapy because again, I, there's a ton of value. There's always self-help groups like 12-step facilitation. We might even be looking at some type of medication to deal with temptations, uh, naltrexone, Vivitrol. So there are medications and shots that people can use to deal with, not temptations, I should say cravings. Right. So there's a lot of things that we can put into place. A lot of it is our psychiatrist here says we talk a lot about structure. And I think a premise, I know a premise that we, I really live by is treat the person, not the disorder.
0: Right, I've heard what that. What does this individual
1: exactly. need, and, and that's an approach that I that we take that I really talk to my colleagues about taking is we know what the diagnosis is. Let's treat them to get them where they are. so back to your question, really about creating a a, a recovery program that's specific to that one person. Yeah.
0: So a subjective approach to treating what is a problem that strikes tens of millions of Americans, obviously. The statistic is
1: 74% of people who present in inpatient programs are presenting for alcohol
0: use disorders. That's incredible. That's mm-hmm. Incredible. Now, let's say you're, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you're you're drinking too much, you sort of gotten away from you and you want to, maybe you have increased tolerance and some of the other factors. What's a more mild uh, outpatient treatment for someone on the other end of the intensity?
1: I'm going to probably look at I may look at all the other things, but not as intense. So it, a lot of focus on that person who's really struggling. Mm-hmm. i look more less at what you're doing and why. You know, mm-hmm. The metaphor that I love to use with clients is the metaphor of an iceberg. We know that much of a mass of an iceberg is below the surface. So above the surface, we see that you're drinking too much. Okay. Why? Are we dealing with anxiety? Is it stress at work? Relationship problems? Depression? What do you, what's the benefit to this? What is alcohol doing for you? people will, sometimes clients will say, well, it's doing nothing. I'm like, well, if it's doing nothing, then why do you keep going back to it? You go back to it because it's (laughs) a value.
0: right? Right.
1: Talk about that value. Let's address those underlying challenges. And then we probably address the alcohol indirectly. We don't have to say, don't drink. Let's look at the why. Why are you doing what you do? Let's understand that. And let's, let's address that.
0: Right. No, and, and and being that it's so common and I see it so often in every area of law that I practice and all my attorneys practice, um, that's very helpful to uh and I assume that, that what you're saying about treating addiction for alcohol is very similar to what you would say for other substance abuse issues as mm-hmm. well, correct? Yeah. We're about to legalize marijuana in, in Virginia. <laughs> yes. Uh uh the, the bill has passed both houses of the legislature. And is likely to be signed by the Governor, so I imagine your substance abuse not to comment on the policy i 'll let people debate that in Richmond, but yeah, I, I assume we're going to be seeing much more substance abuse treatment coming out on that as well so so Craig, now we talked about outpatient treatment in light of substance abuse let 's talk about it in the sense that someone's been diagnosed bipolar or you know very depressed, um, some of the more common mental health issues we see tell me about you know, some of the things that you'd be looking at for an outpatient treatment program for for someone who's not substance abuse, more, more on the lines of, of a formal diagnosis mm-hmm. of a mental illness? Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of, I think for me at least, and what we tend to look at here is the person who's been diagnosed, the diagnosis is very helpful because it gives you a snapshot of that person's behavior. But does the person accept that diagnosis? They can be diagnosed with a lot of things, with different diagnoses, but if they fight it, then the diagnosis doesn't matter. But let's say they 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 uh, they've accepted it. What does that then mean for them moving forward? How does that affect? What's the impact? Uh, and a lot of it is talking through that. For some folks, it's a breath of fresh air. Hey, I now understand why I do what I do. For others, it can be a loss. Right? Oh my gosh, I'm going to be dealing with this the rest of my life, and so there's a sadness. And so, therapeutically, I like to believe that it's how do we grieve that how do we accept and grieve it number one but then also how do we accept okay what does this now mean for your life and right. is that a permanent belief is that a short term belief that's one a piece uh, the other part then becomes modality wise you know cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical dialectical behavioral therapy how do we use those different modalities to get you in a healthier place for yourself the diagnosis again is important but it's, but what does it mean to the person with that diagnosis?
0: Right. I know you uh, spent a lot of time speaking nationally on these issues. What are some of the things that you, when you're presenting to groups uh, uh, on substance abuse or mental mental health? What 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 what's the message? What what's the what's the topics? What do you what do you talk about?
1: There's a few pieces I really we really stress is one is providers. What is your responsibility to your clients? Understanding that many therapists work in different arenas. Some are private, some are government agencies, some are EAP. So understanding where you work impacts how you provide the care. A lot of times we'll talk about asking questions of clients. Sometimes those questions are uncomfortable, which are really great because you get a lot of information from the questions in terms of how a person feels about what they're dealing with. Also people will ask, well, how do you do it? Right. That's a question that people will ask when we're talking about mental health or or alcohol moderation or harm reduction. How do you do it? Well, it's training. We encourage or when I talk to people, I encourage always being apprised and oppressed of the newest treatment modalities out there, but also having a level of comfort with what you do and and learning to. I don't like to say stay in your lane, but do what you do and do it well. You don't have to do be all things to all people. Trust what you do and do it that way. Right.
0: Do you feel like the changeover during the COVID crisis to maybe some Zoom calls versus inpatient or in person right. treatment has been an impediment to you doing what you do, or has it been able to work okay?
1: We actually offer it's, just, it's, it's a positive and negative. Right. The value of having someone in the room is I can see the body and I can read the body language and I can tell if something's, the person's uncomfortable, if they're comfortable. And it just makes that process of, and I'll use the word loosely, healing. It, it allows that to happen more freely. Telehealth visits, I sometimes call it headshots because all I see is your head. So I don't get to see everything. Right. And while that doesn't allow for us to do what we can do, it does provide access to people. So I do get to see someone who maybe they can't get in that, that they could still maintain their reportments and they can still maintain their therapy. So there's a, there's a value both ways. We have discussions here often about, you know, what do we do moving forward? And I think the telehealth option for therapy is here to stay. I think it, it does afford some folks an opportunity to meet when they, when they can't.
0: Right. Yeah. When they right. can't make the drive. Yeah. Right. I think it's, that's probably true in all facets of society. It's all here to say, mm-hmm. but, um, now, sort of wrapping up with you, I think one of the things that I found most interesting about you know the 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 clients that we've shared in common at times is when you're undergoing something as stressful as say a divorce or a, a battle over custody of your children, you know all these underlying problems that you may have maybe you drink more than you were before, maybe your depression is greater, your anxiety your stress. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about. When someone's going through a crisis in their family, uh, divorce, domestic relations, fight, whatever, how does that add a dimension to what you try to do outpatient? Uh, In in other words, what's the, you know, if if I'm just someone who's happy at home, but I happen to suffer from a mental health issue, I drink too much versus someone who suffers from a mental health issue or drinks too much Mm -hmm. and they're going through a divorce. How do you change the modalities and the way you treat someone in that kind of situation?
1: Yeah. You know, I I think when people are going through stressful times and the pandemic has been perfect, I talk about going towards the fear. And and I've actually been pressing this question to people. How many of your your decisions on a day-to-day are based in fear? What is the fear? And I I often ask, and I I think it's a value to ask people, let's embrace that feeling, you know, honor it, embrace it, whatever language you want to use. Let's acknowledge it. Because once we acknowledge it, we can do something about it, hey, if I'm going through a custody matter and I'm afraid and I'm frustrated, guess what? I would be too. I believe it's perfect to normalize it because once we talk through it, then we're not hiding from it. And then it allows us to do something with it. And I've seen that with a lot of folks because then it allows that individual who's shown up who wouldn't ever come to therapy to then use therapy even more effectively because they've gotten some value out of it because they're not stigmatized, they recognize that what I'm going through is okay, it is normal, because how many people talk about life stress? Most folks don't, because as you said earlier, there is a stigma behind it, even though the stigma is reducing, there are still people who look and say, you know, I'm okay, I don't need the support, I don't need therapy. So to answer your question, I actually lean in to the challenge of the fear that that person is dealing with.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Craig, thank you so much for all the insight into action we got today. Uh, and I just want to say one of the pleasures of doing my job is getting to work with folks like you. I'm passionate about mental health issues and, and, and especially in my law practice. And i have always found you to be an outstanding professional. Thank you for thank you. sharing clients with me and, and all the great things you've done. And if somebody has heard this and wants to reach out to you and maybe talk to you a little bit more about what they're going through, how yeah. can they get a hold of you? They can uh, reach me at on the main line at
1: 703-646-7664, or they can reach out to me on the website at uh, www.insightactiontherapy.com.
0: Very good. Craig James, thank you so much for your time and I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, John. And thank you for doing this. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.